The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome, everybody, to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Danielle, here with Shano, and you may have heard us filling in regularly for Tom Hartman. Uh, Leslie was kind enough to ask us to sit in today, and we are so honored to be here and share a couple hours with you. And Mark Levin was amazing last hour. Yes. I, I, I was so glad that he covered the NSA story. Yes, we're going to uh, get to that as well. But also hearing his story about, you know, because he was involved in that. You, know, you, you forget, you know, the first time I ever heard Mark uh, was here in D.C., and you know this, Danielle. Uh, he was on the air with David Schuster the day of the oral arguments on the Affordable Care Act, and they grabbed the Supreme Court audio and played it in real time after, obviously, it was released that afternoon. And the two of them played it all the way through on the radio, discussing it, debating it, uh, explaining it. It was it was great radio. And from then on, I was a big fan. So, yeah. so it's that, great to follow him as well. It, it is. And that definitely sounds like a, uh, a typical, informative, interesting segment with uh, Mark and David Schuster. Um, uh, again, big thanks to Leslie Marshall. Thanks to her producers for helping us out and getting us on the air here today. If you want to follow along with us on Twitter, uh, you can find Shano at Producer Shano. And you can find me at Danielle on Radio. We love to hear from you. Uh, love to hear your thoughts as well as your calls at 888-6-LESLIE. We're going to have two great guests coming up in the next couple hours. Uh, first, we're going to be speaking with uh, Greg Grandin of The Nation and of New York University, uh, as well as Ian Milheiser of the Center for American Progress. Great informative topics. Can't wait to speak to them. But we did want to take a few minutes right. and give you your Leslie fix. Yes, because I, I would imagine Leslie <laughs> listeners are going through a little bit of withdrawal. She takes a much-deserved vacation, so we're going to do Ripped from the Headlines. Exactly. And there are uh, lots of big stories in the news today. Of course, uh, the NSA, which Mark got to and we're going to get to later in the show. Big story in the headlines. Shane's going to help break down the legal side of that for us. I as... have the decision in front of me, all yeah. 98 pages of it. We won't, <laughs> yes. we won't go through it all, but it's interesting. And there's some folks down in Texas who are really worried that Obama's going to come and take over their state. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a pretty good idea, quite honestly. But yes. And... They aren't. And we are uh, watching the U.K. elections. Fun fact, if you're not aware, that if there is a tie in the U.K. elections, the queen picks the winner. Sounds familiar. Well, actually, in every single election, the, the queen picks the winner. If you if you actually look into this, that you know everyone votes for you know their their members of, of the of the parliament, and then whoever gets the most, then the queen will pick the leader of that party. But in the case where it's exact tie, the the, the queen actually invites the leader of one of the parties over that she chooses, and and says, "Will you form a coalition government?" Perhaps that's where our Supreme Court got the idea. I know. Idea. They, they act more and more like monarchs as I learn more and more about monarchs. Yes. It's one you of know? the things we're going to be speaking with the brilliant <laughs> Ian Melheiser about uh, okay. in just a little while. But I wanted to get to this first story right. uh, that a lot of people may have missed with all the big news going on. But did you know that there was a town evacuated in North Dakota because of a huge fiery oil train explosion? Right on cue. This explosion happened just about 48 hours 
after the Department of Transportation announced that they were getting really serious about oil train explosions. Uh, their timing's a little little late. Little late to the party on that one. Uh, yes. The Department of Transportation has released long-awaited safety standards for train cars carrying oil and other flammable materials. Now, we've seen these explosions, the huge one up in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was back in 2013. Um, And there's already been five in North America this year. Uh, the, the most recent, I think, was West Virginia. Right. Now, these were not regulated. This was kind of they were kind of exempted, were they not? Yes. (laughs) You know, under the Bush Cheney. You know, uh, if it has to do with oil, we can't regulate a doctrine. Pretty much. Right. Pretty much. And um, some, perhaps, more liberal, more environmentally friendly folks uh, like myself would say that these safety standards they've recently in, uh, implemented don't quite go far enough. They've reduced the uh, maximum speed limit to 50 miles per hour. They've uh, instituted new operational protocols. And they've included uh, new updated braking systems for trains. However, Mm -hmm. they've actually reduced regulation and made it so that the railroads and the oil companies no longer have to let states know when they're bringing flammable (laughs) oil trains through their neighborhoods. Because they might actually enact local ordinances that would say, we'd rather that not come through our town, thank you very much. Right. Right, exactly. Um, Hey, I guess some regulation is better than none. Well, what bothers me, and I don't know if this bothers you too, Danielle, is the whole debate over Keystone, the Keystone XL pipeline, is that the Keystone XL pipeline will be much safer than these trains. All right? So if they're going to build the Keystone XL pipeline, why can no one ensure that they will no longer take this crude oil over the trains? They, They won't do that. So the regulation really should be, we're outlawing this. That would be my suggestion for the regulation. We are outlawing this. This is, this is so dangerous that we should not be doing it. Yes, your fuel prices will go up. But let's, let's take some money and invest it in greener energies and get off of the oil. If, if it can blow up a town, if you've got to evacuate a town over it, we'd rather not do it anymore. Thank you. Right. And unsurprisingly, the oil companies are very upset about how much this new regulation may cost them. Well, they can but take some we... of their taxpayer subsidies to, to pay for... The uh, up to what braking systems, right? Or whatever. But uh, if we look to towns like, uh, forgive me, this town in North Dakota, because I'm probably mispronouncing <laughs> this name, Heimdall, uh, North Dakota, a town of only about 40 people mm-hmm. that were evacuated, is now going to be on the hook for cleaning up this mess. Right. So who should bear those costs? The oil company or the 40 farmers living in North Dakota? Right. I know which one I'm siding with. And we have another one. Oh. Shano's late with the side effect, sound effect. Um, Facebook Facebook says that the Internet uh, does not polarize us as much as we would come to believe. Now, I've talked about this. We've talked about this. We've heard about this for a very long time that that they use these algorithms when looking at your search terms and who your friends are and what your likes are, your dislikes, what you know, your favorite books are, and they figure out what you like and they only show you what you like. So we worry that when we're having these political discussions specifically, that all you're getting on your feed are the things you agree with, and that ends up polarizing us. So right. if, if you're hyper-conservative, you're only going to get Ted Cruz you know, posts, and if you're very liberal, you're only going to get Bernie Sanders and, and Hillary Clinton posts. Uh, and... and So Facebook says this isn't true. Facebook says that about a quarter of our friends on Facebook share opposite 
uh, have opposite views, and about a third of the news stories displayed in our feed are actually of a different viewpoint. So while we think that this Internet bubble Mm -hmm. continues to separate us, uh, make us seem so different from one another, there's actually a lot of similarities there if we're paying attention. Now, take it all with a grain of salt, yeah, because yeah, guess who conducted the study? Facebook. <laughs> Ding! So Facebook is, is, has conducted a study to tell them, tell us that, that Facebook is, not doing, as bad. is yeah. doing a great job of, yeah. of integrating and, and having all kinds of exchange of different ideas. Exactly. Well, well it seems that the, the, their, their study only indicates that if we have a diverse group of friends, therefore we see a diverse group of ideas. It really depends on what, how, how big our circle is and who's included in it. Exactly. It certainly doesn't uh, uh, lead to bridging gaps that, that may exist in our lives, I think, despite what their study says. Yeah, but you know what? Either way you look at it, if we are being exposed to a more diverse set of ideas, I think that could be a good thing. Oh, yeah. You I know, agree. Living in I'm one... just saying it's up to us still. Exactly. Living in one uh, political bubble, I don't think necessarily benefits us in the long run. No. Um, but it is those political bubbles that lead to very one-sided views, like we've seen recently, particularly when it comes to Baltimore, right up the road from us yeah. broadcasting here in D.C. I myself have heard lots of questions about, uh, you know, why would these people riot? Right. Why would they destroy their own stuff? Mm-hmm. Why don't they move out of Baltimore? Yeah. And there is a lot we need to learn to be able to understand and answer those questions. There's an amazing article up over at Alternet today by Tim Wise, in which he quotes James Baldwin, no, novelist. Uh, if you don't know him, look him up. It will help. <laughs> yes. Uh, who says, this is a crime of which I accuse my country and my countrymen and for which neither I nor history will ever forgive them. And they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. I want to know it. And I think you want to know it, too. And that's exactly why we're going to speak with our next guest, Greg Grandin of New York University, author, uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner. He's going to teach us about some of this next. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show with me, Danielle, and Shano. And we'll be back in just a few minutes. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Show. I'm Danielle here with Shano uh, and speaking with Greg Grandin, the author of Empire's Workshop, Forlandia, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in History and a National Book Award, and most recently author of The Empire of Necessity, Slavery, Freedom, and the Deception in the New World, teaches at New York University. You can follow him on Twitter at Greg Grandin. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Very much uh, looking forward to this discussion. Um, with the news about Baltimore, uh, I'm broadcasting now from Washington, D.C., right right down the road from Baltimore. So this uh, conversation has not only been ongoing, but it has been, um, you know, at people's dinner tables, uh, among friends, social media, very prevalent in day-to-day life. And the questions that keep coming up are, 
you know, why don't these people move? Why do they end up in the financial uh, dire straits that they're in? How come they can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps? And your piece, I think, speaks so well to that capitalism and slavery that people can check out over at the nation and how this goes back so much further than the riot in Baltimore. Um, Am I putting those pieces together correctly? Is that a stretch? No, I, I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, my piece was a little bit more historical, you know, looking at a bunch of uh, different works, new books that established the relationship and dependence of capitalism on slavery. Put simple, that without slavery, without the wealth created by slavery, without the slave system and the commodities created by slavery, there is no capitalism, there is no wealth in the United States. Uh, but I think a lot of other scholars and and, and commentators have made a more direct link about ongoing ways, the ways in which ongoing poverty, Baltimore, and you know, having a life expectancy lower than North, some, some neighbors in Baltimore having a life expectancy lower than North Korea, um, you know, infant mortality rates you know, skyrocketing. Um, I think that all of those things, uh, housing policy can be traced back to history of slavery in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in you, you have an excerpt from your book in this nation piece, um, and you write that this was a racism that was born in chattel slavery, but didn't die with chattel slavery. Instead of evolving into today's cult of individual supremacy, which try as it might, can't seem to shake off its white supremacist roots. I think so many people miss this point or want to shut their eyes, uh, want to pretend like it is not ongoing and it has not continued from way back in these days. How do we get this conversation going and wake people up to the fact that these problems still exist? Well, I think there has to be a reckoning with with what with the legacy of slavery. And, and of course, in the United States, slavery is something that it can't be transcended. It can't be. It can't be forgotten. But it also can't be remembered. And I think it's that double-edged nature of can't remember, can't forget, which gets at the heart of the kind of slipperiness of race. You know why at the moment it seemed like you know the country was transcending its racial past. It seems to be plunged deeper into it. I think uh, there's there's a new generation of historians and scholars that have. Once again, return to this question. This isn't a new thing. Historians such as Eric Williams back in the 1940s was establishing the connection between between the wealth of the modern world and the slave system uh, back in 1944. And other, other scholars and African-American scholars, going back even further, were establishing that relationship. But uh, it seems to be something that's forgotten with every, gener- every generation and has to be, has to be remembered anew. So this is uh, what I'm talking about is the larger context. Obviously, there's more specific current and active policies that perpetuate exclusion, that perpetuate poverty, that perpetuate the kind of, um, you know, racism and, and, uh, and, and structural racism that we see in, in Baltimore and in so many places exploding, being exposed with the Black Lives Matter movement and, the, and, and, and the just, on, you know, just on the you know, municipal kind of exploitation of African-American communities. But what I was trying to do is step back a little bit and looking at the, the, the larger context. And, and it, is, it is quite remarkable that slavery is something that can't be transcended and it can't, it can't actually ever be uh, uh, remembered either. 
Yeah, I, I so often hear, you know, that was 200 years ago. We need to stop focusing on it. People need to get over it. I hear these these comments on a daily basis, and I personally find them troubling. Um, what is it that that we as as a nation are forgetting um, that people perhaps would really benefit to remember when looking at situations like Baltimore? Yeah, well, obviously Baltimore was a slave port. Right. This was a slave city. And if you read Frederick Douglass's narrative, he, he talks about being enslaved in, in Baltimore. Um, uh, stepping back and, 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 again, thinking, grappling more with the history of slavery. I mean, slavery it wasn't just the wealth of, that, that, that slavery produced that went in and capitalized other industries. Uh, slavery led to the creation of the modern insurance industry. Some of that Etna's first policies were underwriting slave lives. Other insurance companies underwrote slave ships and slave voyages. Uh, what we think of as modern law and modern philosophy and kind of the, the, the reformation of Christianity that, 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 um, that took place in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, uh, that, that was all related to slavery, the defending slavery, the, uh, 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 contesting slavery, trying to reform slavery, um, modern medicine. Uh, slave ships weren't just floating tombs; they were floating laboratories. They, they they allowed medical researchers a chance to observe the course of diseases in fairly controlled environments. And and a lot of um, what we know of trachoma, for instance, we we modern medicine learned from observing uh, slave ships that came in with thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, eighty percent of the cargo dead. Um, so a lot of that information filtered out into the broader medical community um, and, 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 benefit, and benefits you know, contributed to what we know as modern medicine. There's so many ways in which slavery underwrote the modern world, not just in the wealth it created, but in, in the institutions and the kind of revolution and morals that, that created modernity. Yeah, and I think we do a disservice to what we owe uh, millions of Americans, you know, as well as millions of people around the world, as well as uh, we ignore such a big part of why things are still broken in our culture. Um, Greg, you're going to stick around and we're going to have more of this discussion, I hope? Yeah. Okay, great. We're speaking with Greg Grandin, Danielle and Shano here, in for Leslie Marshall. We'll be right back with more. Stick around. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Danielle in with Shano. Uh, sitting in for Leslie today, big thanks to Leslie and her team for helping us stand in, and we hope we're doing an okay job filling her shoes. Uh, we are speaking with Greg Grandin, author of Empire's Workshop, and most recently, The Empire of Necessity, Slavery, Freedom, and Deception in the New World. Uh, Greg, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Oh, thanks, thanks again for having me. In reading your work, uh, it made me really start to think about this whole conversation about reparations. Uh, Ferguson, uh, New York, Detroit, um, Baltimore, it, it's been a rather uncomfortable conversation to watch in the media because I don't think people really know how to discuss it. But reading your work, 
um, the background, the history of this entire concept is completely different from what I had believed that it was. Can you explain that, uh, explain where this idea came from and how so many people in the media are, are somewhat missing the point in the discussion? Well, reparations, I mean, you want to talk about reparations for slavery itself in the 19th and 19th and 17th century, but let's even set that aside. Let's just talk about reparations for the, the municipal fines that are extracted out of African-American communities. Or, yes. For, you know, you know, whole municipal budgets, but Ferguson runs the municipal budgets on, on, on punitive fines extracted from African-American communities. I mean, how about just reparations for that? Um, I think we could think of reparations more philosophically. Uh, we could think of reparations in terms of the value of the labor that was extracted out of slavery, but also what about the wealth and, and prosperity? Uh, you know, what about what about the wealth and prosperity created from the slave system? I mean, how would one put a value on the medical knowledge that we extracted or that the slave system extracted from from slave ships on on medical advances in, in trachoma, for instance. I mean, how, how would one how would one uh, uh, estimate the value of that? I mean, I, at, le- at least having a discussion would 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 begin to to reckon with uh, what the, you know the slave system and the aftermath of the slave system, the slavery by another name, the ways in which um, after slavery was formally abolished, new forms of exploitation and exclusion were were put into place politically, institutionally, and structurally. Yeah, many of which remain in place. Um, I I went back to your piece from February of uh, 2014, talking about how slavery made the modern world. And it it touches on so many of these pieces that you've mentioned that I just want to point listeners to it in case they want more information. Um, One of the points that I found so um, horrendous and and shameful about our own history is that even this whole idea of of reparations of insurance essentially came to reward slave owners reward uh, those who imprisoned our our fellow Americans not as a way to repay those who were kept in servitude. Oh yes, if you look back, actually reparations—it's a point I make in that piece—is that reparations have been paid, but actually not to. Not to enslave people, but the slave owners having lost property at different moments. For instance, after the Haitian Revolution, French slaveholders were 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 paid reparations for having lost property. The British British slavers were were, uh, were paid reparations, including, I believe, some of the some of the ancestors of David Cameron who's standing for, for re-election today. I think as we speak in in, in Great Britain. Um, so so it, it, reparations have actually been paid, except not on slave people, but 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 to slave owners. Right, and you don't hear people, uh, you know, crying about that or or pointing to that history as shameful. Uh, yet, if anybody so uh, so dares to bring up this this concept in terms of places like Baltimore, in cities, in ghettos that uh, remain because of those institutional policies, um, they're looked at as if you know they they have two heads. Uh, is this a reasonable thought? A reasonable way to deal with uh, situations like Detroit with Baltimore? 
Well, I think it would be a be- it would be it would be a beginning. And again, you know, there's there's ways in which one can talk about the uh, the, the structural and the political and the policy uh, uh, instruments in place that have have perpetuated ongoing exclusion and exploitation. But slavery was also an emotional system. So much of how we think of what we think of freedom, what we think of individualism, and that was that was to the point of the line that you read from from the more recent piece that. Notions of individual supremacy that that underwrite so much of American political culture, particularly you know, kind of sharper edge libertarianism and Tea Party republicanism and and that, but even a, I think a broader political culture that 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 goes well beyond that hardcore uh, political movement. Um, that individual supremacism is is has its has its roots in a white supremacy. It's it's disguised and it's moved on, but so much of our notion of individual freedom and individual self-cultivation and self-interest and inherent rights were defined in in opposition to enslaved peoples and the slave system more more broadly. So even on a kind of more emotional or psychic level, slavery creates the the the. the the modern world and, and, and the ways we think of, of, of modern life. Yeah, I want to quickly remind everybody, uh, this is Danielle and Shana. We're, we're sitting in for Leslie, and we're speaking with Greg Grandin, uh, author of, among other books, just the, the most recent, Empire of Necessity, Slavery, Freedom, and Deception in the New World. I think it is so vitally important that we have this discussion when we think about the context of, of you know, Baltimore, of uh, Ferguson, areas like this, because so often the the quote-unquote American response is, well, these people haven't worked hard enough. They haven't had that individual goal uh, to, to get out of the area. And it speaks to what you were just saying, that that idea in and of itself is rooted in racism. And... Uh, why is it that people fail to understand that? Is it that we just don't want to look at the honest history? Well, I think I think what makes I think one of the things that kind of structures American exceptionalism, what does indeed make America exceptional, is this denying of the history of slavery. I think other countries, you know, I am making you know, painting with a broad brush here, but had a more honest reckoning. They they didn't fetishize the notion of freedom the way the U.S. does, and 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 deny the way that that ideal of freedom was defined in relation to slaves and slavery. And part of it had to do with I think the the open board, the the the, the push west, the way constant expansion west uh, allowed a deferment, allowed a kind of great evasion of of, of avoiding that reckoning that maybe other countries that were slave societies didn't have. And over time, I think that that what became a kind of self-conscious way of not dealing with social problems by pushing West or pushing for market expansion becomes almost a kind of rote amnesia. It becomes kind of, uh, you know, it becomes a kind of unconscious amnesia. And I think that's one of the things that explains what is exceptional about the United States when it comes to race, why, why, why they why there seems to be this kind of double nature, why it can never be remembered, but it can never be transcended at the same time. Yeah, it it really is a uh, sadly interesting phenomenon. You know, you cover uh, slavery in much more than this country. You you talk about it in, in uh, the Americas as a whole, as well as other places. And it, it, it makes me curious of your recent point. Do you see countries that addressed this, you know, decades, if not a century ago, uh, head on and maybe more honestly than we did, 
are they better off in terms of race relations and equality than perhaps the U.S. or other uh, American countries, you know, American continent countries uh, are today? I, yeah. I mean, again, it's painting in a very broad brush and, 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 make, and making great generalizations. But I think so. I, I would say that Latin America, countries like Latin America have a more... I think that the origins of Latin America's tradition of social rights, the idea of that you have a right not just to individual freedoms, to expression, to speech, to religion, to assemble, but you have a right to health care, that you have a right to education, that you have a right to dignified life, that you have a right to social security uh, and, 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 and pensions. I think that, that you know those kind of more active rights, that tradition of active social rights, I think that that does ultimately relate to a more honest uh, reckoning with the realities of social power, of which slavery is obviously a part of the United States again, because it because it could participate or enact this great evasion through constant expansion, constant warfare, constant moving outward, never dealt with the reality of social power, of which slavery was obviously a big, but not only part of, but but obviously an overwhelming part of, of social power, and, and, and that accounts for this fetish of individual rights. The idea, when Rand Paul says that the right, the right to believe in, the right, the, the belief that you have a right to health care is like believing in the right to hold slaves, it's a crazy statement, but it, it, <laughs> but it has a kind of historical logic to it. You know, I mean, Rand Paul did say that, 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 you know, if you believe in the right to health care, it's like saying you believe in slavery. It's like advocating slavery. It, this, that, that statement would be incomprehensible in any other country in the world except the United States, where I think there is an historical logic to it. You know, I, I, I think you nailed it there. And I think that we're, you know, there's all this talk about how we move forward and how we fix situations like Ferguson and Baltimore. And I think it starts with having an honest conversation with facing these issues head on, even if we're 100 years, you know, late to the conversation. Uh, I don't think we can move forward until we stop saying, uh, you know, these people should just pull up their bootstraps and do it on their own, that we as a nation need to come together and do more. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. I, I agree completely. Thank you. Uh, Greg, I really appreciate your time, and um, I really hope that people go out and read this book. It is it is more important now than so many times before in our history that to get a real education on, on how we got to this point, and your work is one that really provides that education. Well, thanks so much, Danielle. I, I, really, I really appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely. Uh, Greg Grandin, I want to remind everybody the book is The Empire of Necessity, Slavery, Freedom, and Deception in the New World. His Twitter is Greg Grandin, website Greg Grandin, G-R-A-N-D-I-N.com. And there's uh, a, quite a few really great pieces over at uh, The Nation. Nation.com. And, and as this is, has gone on in Baltimore, a lot of, of, of smart people have asked the question, what can we do? You know, what can we do about, about what's going on? What can we do to, to move to have some progress in this? And so often I'm reading these lists uh, that the, the solution is read more, find out more, find out more. And then you, you pull up articles from Tennessee saying they're trying to write slavery out of the textbooks. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, it's like we're operating on two different tracks. It, it really is. And I, I, I think, you know, going back and uh, really reviewing 
this information, having an honest conversation about it is where we start. I mean, the ideas that make America America, including things like free trade and capitalism, are actually rooted in this dark history we have of slavery. And Greg does an amazing job of just breaking that down so that individual people uh, can understand it. Um, Walking around this city, there is not a building around here that wasn't built by, you know, know, the older buildings, our government buildings here in D.C., every one of them built pretty much by slave labor. You know, so we have an entire city built by it. So not only is our capitalist system built by it, but a lot of our our government was built by it. Yeah, I know. Sitting sitting here in the nation's capital, you want to talk about how rooted slavery is in our history? The very buildings that I can look out the window, the very buildings that that emphasize and illustrate our nation's capital were built by the hands of African-Americans. And it's time to acknowledge that because we're not going to fix Ferguson. We're not going to fix Baltimore, Detroit until we admit it. It's dark. It's sad. It's nothing we want to own up to. But sometimes we got to take our medicine. Uh, This is Danielle and Shano in for Leslie Marshall today. We will be back with more right after this. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Danielle, here with Shano, in for Leslie today. And I want to quickly uh, mention that this Mother's Day, give a crystal heart to your mother. It is the Mother to Mother program through GoatsForTheOldGoat.com. Bring your mom crystal hearts or a goat for a mother who is hungry, along with hearts made by women in South Sudan, or a certificate and a photo of your goat from South Sudan. Visit GoatsForTheOldGoat.com. That's GoatsForTheOldGoat.com. And now the old goat herself, Ellen Ratner of the Talk Radio News Service, How's it going, Ellen? What's well, in the know, news today? Interesting. When I go to the Minister of Health in South Sudan, uh, his secretary calls, the old goat is here. <laughs> I stole it from Tom. Otherwise, I would never call you an old goat. But everybody does. Okay, what's <laughs> going on today? The nuclear agreement, which means that the president has to consult Congress before list- lifting any of the sanctions, although we can probably do some without consulting Congress, passed 98 to 1. Today, Tom Carton, Cotton of Arkansas, who demanded that uh, Iran recognize Israel, was the only lone dissenter, and Barbara Boxer was absent for this today. Also, interestingly enough, the National Association of Realtors said that while prices have recovered, income distribution has not, forcing people to rent, leaving many households uh, out from any gain, financial gain, by entering the real estate market. Now, did they address the fact that it's uh, a lot of banks and um, uh, financial firms actually buying up the real estate? Well, uh, they didn't really. They just said that the housing uh, has has recovered, uh, but that individual buyers aren't. So they kind of left it out as to who was buying. But but yeah. we do know that small families are not buying. Exactly. So, if they're not buying and the real estate market's up, somebody's buying them. Uh, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 
uh, that's on that front. Uh, on a few other fronts, of course, uh, the Second Circuit today uh, ruled on uh, a bulk data collection saying that it cannot happen. Now, the problem is other circuits have gone the other way, and there's still some more cases. So this is going to be another Supreme Court special for Mr. Shane to sit in on. Yes, I'll, I'll be surprised if they, you know, it's got to go there to get any resolution, but they have avoided trying to rule on it at all. They don't want to weigh in on this one. So uh, that is for sure. They would like to go away. Well, yeah. um, Secretary Kerry was in Saudi Arabia today uh, supporting the Saudi Arabians in terms of what they're doing in Yemen, also talking about Syria. And I guess there's going to be a conference in the next week or so in France on this issue. And last but not least, uh, Democrats have called on the Republicans to fund, in the Senate this at least, the Highway Trust Fund bill, saying that a lot of our infrastructure is falling apart, but also it will create jobs. And any response from the Republicans on that? Not yet, but, you know, they will. I mean, they're just going to say we need to do amendments, we need to study this. It's just a bunch of Republican typical. Yeah, but the, uh, the, the highway fund runs out at the end of this month, at the end of May. So they'll have to do something, even if it's the typical Republican, you know, uh, governed by extension. And that's well, all they, yes, they it's get called done. continuing resolutions. And yeah. that's probably what they'll do so that they don't have to make a commitment one way or the other. That is how they operate. Yeah, pretty much. So anything else going on in the news uh, today? Well, I mean, just, you know, I, honestly, uh, we... We have uh, we have uh, this the whole issue with the FBI and uh, the two shooters in Arizona and the FBI saying well they knew about this James Cummy from the FBI uh, said this but why didn't they do more and they say well they need more personnel to follow these people and when somebody gets on their Twitter account I don't think that's rocket science yeah this is the whole Pam Geller uh, Muslim right. drawings of Muhammad etc I mean the uh, guy was twittering yeah. It makes me wonder, I mean, NSA in the news today, if we're giving up all of this privacy, if we're constantly giving out information, um, why can't they keep us safe? If, if they can't keep us safe, then why are they collecting all our information? Well, that's an excellent question. I think I'm going to continue that on my next radio hit. But the, the other issue is, is uh, you know, it, pri- uh, Twitter account is not so private. It's very public. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to monitor somebody's Twitter account. <laughs> exactly. From the words of Ellen Ratner. Anything else in the news? Uh, that is pretty much top of the hit parade today. All right. Now, I, Alan, I, want, I, had a, I had a question yeah. for you when it comes to the NSA case. Now, you say that it might go to the Supreme Court, but isn't, isn't the, the, the Patriot Act up in like three weeks? Yeah, and so actually, right if they don't renew that provision of the safe, uh, Patriot Act, you're right. It's not going to bother to go to the Supreme Court because it's not a law. You're a lawyer. You know about that. Right. Well, but also if they change it just enough, what, what I'm worried about, this is my worry. And this is just my theory also. If Congress changes it just enough, just a tiny, tiny bit, then it's a different case altogether. And I'm worried that they're going to have to start all over at square one. Essentially say that case is moot now. You, we, we can't review that because the Patriot Act is gone. And you know, that's what I'm worried is going to occur. Oh, you are. A, that's why you went to law school and I didn't. <laughs> but that's what I think is going on.
Yeah. I think you're absolutely right, and that is a way that they can wiggle out of it. Yeah, and just drag it out and keep it up, and that's what that's my worry. So I would like the Supreme Court to look at it. I don't think the Supreme Court really wants to look at it. Oh, they clearly don't want to look at it. No, that's a hot potato they don't want. But Ellen Ratner and the amazing folks at the Talk Radio News Service, including Shano, will be watching if they do. Well, he's 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 our guy. (laughs) Happy to be so. Yes. Ellen Ratner, uh, goats for the old goat. It's Mother's Day. Go buy mom a goat. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you. Goatsfortheoldgoat.com. We'll be back with more on The Leslie Marshall Show. Stick around. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. The Leslie Marshall Show. The only true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Danielle here with Shano in for Leslie. Big thanks to Leslie and her her amazing team uh, for for helping us talk to you today. Uh, It's quite an honor to sit in. And it is also quite an honor, as always, to speak with the one and only Ian Milheiser, constitutional policy analyst at the Center for American Progress, justice editor over at the Think Progress blog, and author of the Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Ian, I almost made it through your title without stumbling. Almost. It is, it is a bit of a tongue teaser. Like my, my publisher and I, we probably should have thought about that one a bit more. <laughs> but sometimes you need to be accurate. And uh, I think it is precise and accurate when it comes to the Supreme Court. Um, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, it came about, you know, the book's title is Injustices, which is obviously a bit of a pun. Um, it came about because I worked on the first Affordable Care Act case, and I discuss in the book, you know, that there was a woman who was raped, and her insurance, comp- insurance told- companies told her that her rape was a pre-existing condition. There was a family that I, there's a family I discussed in there where the wife had a heart condition, the husband was in a motorcycle accident, and they had enough money to pay for his care or for her care, but not for both. Now, no one should have to make that kind of choice, but certainly no American should have to make that kind of choice. And the fact that the Supreme Court of the United States came within a hair of sending us back to that world, that should wound your soul. I mean, that's why I wrote this book, because I found that there are just too many instances of justices behaving that way. Yeah, and it's kind of like Pandora's box, where once you start looking into those cases of afflicting the afflicted, um, you keep finding more examples of it. And, you know, you spoke about the Affordable Care Act. Obviously, cases like that, cases like same-sex marriage, tend to get a lot of attention in the media, as they should. But there are so many more examples in this term alone of the Supreme Court possibly doing this again, comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. Which cases are really important and uh, that, that aren't getting the coverage in the media? What, which would you think would be uh, the most one or the first one we should focus on? Well, you know, one case that I'm watching very closely is a case that could really just gut our civil rights law, 
Um, so the way that our civil rights law works is that there's basically two ways you can win a civil rights suit. You, there's something called disparate treatment, and to prove disparate treatment, you almost have to have a smoking gun document. Like, you have to have the bank CEO email someone within the bank say, hey, we've decided not to lend to black people now to prove disparate treatment. It's really hard to do. Um, the other method is called disparate impact. And disparate impact litigation, the way that that works, is essentially allows you to look at what sort of results the company is, is, is producing so that if you have a bank and the average white borrower is getting one rate and the average black borrower, despite the fact that they have um, you know, the same credit rating, the same income, and all the same financial data, is getting a much worse rate. That looks a whole lot like discrimination, and the courts have allowed those discrimination cases to move forward, too. There's a case in front of the court right now that could take away the ability of courts to combat that kind of discrimination. It could gut the Federal Fair Housing Act, which prevents housing discrimination, and potentially could eliminate most of the, many of these civil rights suits that are being brought if the court declares this second theory, this disparate impact theory, unconstitutional. Now, uh, I want to quickly remind everybody, we're speaking with Ian Milheiser, constitutional policy analyst at Center for American Progress and author of Injustices. Um, how is it, Ian, that they can even, that this, this could even be a possibility? You know, who can look, even in this day and age, at, at housing, at banking, at car sales and not say that there is still disparate impact? Um, what kind of legal reasoning could they possibly use to eliminate this uh, uh, precedent, if you would? Right. Well, I mean, we talked about the same Supreme Court here that drew out part of the Civil Rights Act. That there yeah. isn't <laughs> enough racism anymore to justify the Civil Rights Act. So, you know, I, th I think what the problem is, is that there's basically two ways of looking at civil rights law. You know, one way to say is that it's there to fix wrong. It's there to recognize the fact that there are certain people, whether because of their skin color, whether because of their gender, for whatever reason, have you know not been treated right, and we need to make sure that they are treated the same way as everyone else, and when they are discriminated against, the law has to step in and fix that problem. That's one way of looking at it. That's how I look at it. The other way of looking at it is to say, you know, sometimes people out there have racist ideas and like they do something because they have a bad intention. And if you can prove that someone did something with a bad intention, then you get to sue them and then you get to win. But if you can't prove that, you're out of luck. And that, I think, is how Chief Justice Roberts views civil rights laws. And it's not about curing ill. It's not about eliminating discrimination. It's about punishing that small band of people. You could actually prove what was going on in their head at the time they, they did something. And if you can't prove that, you have a lot. And, I mean, we've seen this with the Voting Rights Act, as you've said, the Civil Rights Act. Uh, we've seen it with affirmative action that the Supreme Court has uh, struck down. Um, is it wrong or is it uh, perhaps uh, premature to say that this doesn't look so great before this Supreme Court, that our chances of, of maintaining our civil rights uh, as we know it doesn't look so hot? I mean, I think so long as we have the justices we have right now, civil rights law is in trouble. I, I mean, John Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, has made clear that one of his major projects as Chief Justice is – 
rethinking the way that the wall approaches race and rethinking it in a way that just makes it very, very difficult for, um, that just makes it very, very difficult for civil rights plaintiffs to win. Yeah. Uh, obviously, King v. Burwell, we've, we've talked about a lot in the media. We've heard about that. But there's another case that I think is uh, huge in terms of the effect it could have on the country, and that's gerrymandering the Arizona State Legislature v. Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission. These names are always just so precise on what the case is actually about. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about that one? Sure. So Arizona has, um, in order to prevent gerrymandering, their congressional district lines aren't drawn by the state legislature. They're drawn by an independent commission that was created by a ballot initiative. And this lawsuit claims that that ballot initiative is unconstitutional. The theory is that the Constitution at one point refers to the legislature's power to set the time, places, and manners of elections. The plaintiffs argue that the word legislature only means, like, the state house or the state senate. Um, what the Supreme Court has said for more than 100 years is, no, it doesn't mean that. It means the body that gets to make the law. So if the body that gets to make the law is the people through a ballot initiative, that counts. And if the Supreme Court now, like, a hundred years later goes back and says, oh, just kidding, the only state election laws that are valid are the ones that are passed by the state lawmakers. What that means is not only does this commission go away, but, you know, it's funny, I was, I was recently at an event and I spoke on this case, and I said what it's going to be like is it's going to be like going through state election law and crossing out lines at random, because we don't know... Um, what state laws have been done by initiative, what state laws have been done through the legislature, and everything that was done by initiative is going to be declared unconstitutional. After I said this at this meeting, someone in the audience came up and said, you know, I had one of my interns actually pull that list, and I can send it to you if you want it. She sent it to me. It's 25 pages long. Oh, my Just goodness. Like, yeah. So, like, the Supreme Court will potentially invalidate 25 pages worth of names of uh, state laws that no one thought was unconstitutional until, you know, this case came along. And, you know, a year before an election, they, they're due to, to put decisions out um, here within the next uh, month or two. Uh, that could have just unimaginable consequences to a presidential election year. Yeah, no, I mean, that's what's so scary about it, is we could go into a presidential election and all these states won't know what their election law is. I, I mean, I told you I got this 25-page list. You know, some of those laws just do really basic things. Like, you know, out in Colorado, the law that determines how some people are allowed to register to vote um, was done through a ballot initiative. So does that mean that anyone who registered to vote under that law their registration is now invalid. Does that mean that we then retroactively have to figure out who those people are and get them to re-register? And if we don't, they're not allowed to register in the next election? Oh, dare I say, this sounds like a Republican's playground where they can pick and choose which laws to implement, which laws to enforce, and essentially throw out the ballots or the voters' registration of everybody else that they don't agree with. Ian, after the break, I really want to get into your book. There's so much in this current uh, 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 Supreme Court term, but it goes back so much further than that. Uh, I hope everybody listening sticks around and they go over to Amazon and pick up their copy of 
injustices, the Supreme Court's history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. Danielle and Shano in for Leslie. We'll be right back. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. 888-6-LESLIE. Marshall Show. I'm Danielle here with Shano in for Leslie today, and we are speaking to the one and only Ian Milheiser, senior constitutional policy analyst at the Center for American Progress, justice editor over at the Think Progress blog, and author of an amazing book that you you absolutely have to go and pick up, Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Ian, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Oh, Absolutely. You have a quote at the introduction of your book. You've also, I believe, placed it at the beginning of a few of your articles uh, by Chief Justice John Roberts back in 1983, who said the generally accepted notion that the court can only hear roughly 150 cases each term gives the same sense of reassurance as the adjournment of the court in July when we know the Constitution is safe for the summer. That is quote, is embedded in my memory, thanks to you and your amazing work. In your research about the Supreme Court, how do you think it was that Chief Justice came to that conclusion, that he was so sure the Supreme Court was a threat to our Constitution? Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, of course, we're talking about the current Chief Justice. Um, (laughs) John Roberts came up at a funny time in American history for conservatives. You know, Roberts had, you know, he hadn't come of age during Roe v. Wade, but all of his mentors had come of age during Roe v. Wade. Some of his mentors remembered the backlash to Brown, which was a very real thing. And so for a brief period in, like, the 1970s, the 1980s, there was a real fear of the Supreme Court among conservatives because they learned what it felt like to have the court do stuff that, that they didn't like. Um, most of the Supreme Court's history has not looked like that. You know, most of the Supreme Court's history, conservatives made out like gangbusters. You, you know, I, I, I discussed in the beginning, there was, um, in my book, there was a coalition of cotton mill owners in the South who wanted, the, the business model they wanted is they wanted to be able to stop hiring adult men, because adult men are too expensive. They wanted to only hire children and maybe women to work in their cotton mills. So the idea would be that, you know, a boy would get to be about age six. They'd work in a cotton mill. they get paid about a dollar a day. And then they'd keep working until they grew up and they were old enough to have a kid of their own. And then they'd get laid off for their, you know, in favor of their six-year-old son. Their six-year-old son would take their job. This was their business model. Um, and they sued they, you know, these cotton mill owners sued, thinking we don't want to have child labor laws. We don't like the federal government to we don't like the federal government has established child labor laws. And the Supreme Court of the United States said, you know what, you're right. The federal government shouldn't be able to make child labor laws. The federal government shouldn't be shouldn't be regulating what's going on what's going on in the labor relationship. And that came up over and over again throughout the, the court's history. So you know, what worries me. When I look at the court's past, 
when I look at the direction the court is going in now, is that most of the conservative lawyers are running around. They didn't grow up in this strange environment that John Roberts came of age in, where there were actually conservative lawyers running around who knew what it was like to live through the court doing something that, that hurts them, too. You know, they've spent their entire lives watching this court get more and more conservative with each passing year. And the danger, I think, is that when I listen to their rhetoric now, they're pining more and more for the old days when the court did things like made it nearly impossible to unionize, when it struck down the minimum wage. And, you know, there's a danger that they could take us back to them, depending on who winds up picking the next set of justices. Yes, I I can recall various uh, articles that you've written in which our current justices actually cite those cases that you're mentioning, or at least cite the the courts that uh, ruled them, use their decision-making processes to try and reach some rather conservative conclusion that they get to in recent decisions. This isn't um, hyperbole or, or a possibility. This is uh, something that's actually occurring. Am I right on that? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the case that struck down the child labor laws in the early 20th century is called Hammer v. Dagenhart. You can go back, you can look up Hammer, Hammer v. Dagenhart. What it says at the end of that opinion is it says, look, there's certain things that the federal government gets to do, there's certain things that the state governments get to do. That's not necessarily controversial. Um, and then it says, if we were to allow the federal government to regulate child labor laws, then the federal government's power would become limitless. It would subsume the area that's reserved to the state. And so we have to strike it down because we think that that's too much. We can't give the federal government the power to, to regulate child labor because then they can do anything. Well, flash forward almost 100 years, about 90 years, and what was the argument that was being raised against the Affordable Care Act? It was, mm-hmm. oh, God, if the government can regulate health care in this way, before you know it, they'll be able to do anything, and then they'll force you to buy broccoli. So what do you and think it, is the... <laughs> What do you think is the solution in the, you know, uh, uh, barely two minutes here that we have left? Um, is it do we put term limits on the court? Do we uh, have Congress regulate them? How do we get a Supreme Court that more represents, uh, you know, logical thinking? Well, I think that if we can ratify a constitutional amendment, I would want an amendment that puts in place a nonpartisan selection process for justices. There's a number of states that do it very well. Alaska does it very well. We could we could model the, the selection process after Alaska. But barring a constitutional amendment, um, the only thing that the only tool that we really have at our disposal is we just have to make sure we elect presidents who aren't going to put more people like. Clarence Thomas or Sam Alito on the court, and who are going to put more people like Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan on the court. Um, Because ultimately, you know, that is the best leverage point that the American people have. And I'll say one final thing. If you look at the ages of the justices right now, there are three who will be 80 years old when the next president takes office, and Justice Breyer will be 78. So the next president could appoint nearly half the court in just one term. Wow. It It really is just uh, amazing the impact that these nine individuals can have on our lives. Ian, thank you so much for joining us and breaking this down for us. Thank you. Ian Milheiser, constitutional policy analyst at Center for American Progress. The book is Injustices. Danielle and Shano, in for Leslie.
Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Danielle here with Shano in for Leslie today. Uh, great guests, Greg and Ian. Uh, so informative. Uh, seriously, I wish I could be that smart. <laughs> Read. Lots, yes. Lots. Yes. Read both their books, actually. Yeah, that's where to start. <laughs> Speaking of smart people, I would like to get to your calls. Uh, let's check in with Paul calling from Washington on line two. Paul, you wanted to weigh in on the Supreme Court discussion. Hey, fancy meeting you two on this uh, channel. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Paul in Woodenville? That's, that's, that's the very one. I would recognize that voice anywhere. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're better than my mom, then. <laughs> 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 I Never. call my mom, she says, who is this? Yeah. So yeah, what are I your gonna, thoughts on SCOTUS? Well, I, I, really, I am going to get Ian's book, and it was, uh, you know, it was interesting. What he's, the, is it the quote in the beginning of the book from John Roberts in 1983? Uh, and I, I think John Roberts was a, a clerk for his predecessor, William Rehnquist. I believe so. And w- who said that uh, some of his more outrageous things are that, number one, Ultimately, what's constitutional is what the what's what the majority forces on the minority. <laughs> was, yeah. And then the other one was that he he thought that Plessy versus Ferguson, the um, separate but equal, should never have been overturned with uh, with um, Brown versus Board of Education. That's the kind of that's the kind of uh, ju- chief justice we had in in uh, William Rehnquist, and to have his his law clerk be. Our, our new, it's, it's kind of, uh, isn't it a little creepy just to, that uh, it's, 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 I guess it just smacks of um, cronyism, right? It, it strikes me as monarchy. It, that's what it makes me think of. Uh, I mean, even if we, we were thinking of the U.K. election, right. where uh, I, I didn't know this, maybe this is common knowledge to other people, where if there's a tie... The queen gets to pick which one is the winner. (laughs) And Shane said, wow, it sounds just like our Supreme Court. And, you know, it does sound like our Supreme Court because our Supreme Court thinks of monarchy. They act as monarchy. And as you rightly just pointed out, Paul, there even is that, uh, you know, royal ascendance to the throne, if you will, by clerking for a justice. Yeah, and there's 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 never there's it's not the only time we've had we've actually had nepotism on the court in the uh, late 19th century when um, Justice David Brewer was who was the nephew of another conservative chief uh, another justice Stephen Field. So you've got uh, uncle and nephew on the court at the same time. I mean that's just a little weird. I did uh, not know that. Wow, <laughs> that is a fun fact. I had no clue about that one. Yeah, yeah it's true. Yeah, yeah it's, and and by the way, uh, this is another fun fact. Um, uh, David Brewer's uh, niece, Charlotte Whitney, w- turned out to be a uh, you know, like a, a radical communist, and the uh, it was uh, almost went to prison. She was um, oh gosh, she was she was a, a cohort of uh, oh it's another the, the case slips my mind. It's, it was in 1925. It was a it was a communist free speech case. Uh, I, I, it just it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't think of it. But yeah, she was a uh, so all was not happy in the Brewer family. I must say, interesting <laughs> the family. But you know, you talked about um, stripping the civil—you know—stripping out the Civil Rights Act as, as if uh, racism and, and prejudice and, and discrimination were—you know—well, we don't have that anymore. And, and he, uh, Ian was talking about some of the thing, cases that were decided in, in 1923. There was a, a minimum wage case because he was talking about child labor and, and women's labor. There was a uh, uh, the first. Uh, Atkins versus Children's Hospital was a case that was the first minimum wage case that came to the court, 
And it was a minimum wage case that there was a minimum wage law for women and children in Washington, D.C., that the Congress passed, because this is federal territory, the Congress passed it in 1918, and the court struck it down, and conservative Justice George Sutherland wrote, I'm paraphrasing, that, well, since the 19th Amendment has passed, you know, basically women are on, they're just like men. They're just as as equal as men now, so they have no reason to have a a, a protection of a minimum wage law. And that makes me laugh because the 1970s saw probably 10 uh, women's rights cases come to the court, and a half a dozen of those were argued before the court by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So apparently all was not finished in 1923 just because the 19th Amendment and the suffrage uh, of women's suffrage had passed. Yeah. But, you know, Paul, it amazes me that you remember and recall as much Supreme Court history uh, as you do. I, I I don't know how you do it, but you think about the time, you know, 1920s, women wouldn't have been even able to argue before the court that was saying they are already equal. Well, that, that's exactly true. In fact, one of the courses, one of the one of the cases that came before uh, the court in the 1970s was Reed versus Reed, where uh, the state of Iowa had said that that a woman could not be the executor of a of an estate. Yeah, right. Uh, there was another one, uh, Geshart, that said that women in Illinois couldn't tend bar in the 1970s. Oh yeah, uh, it does not surprise me. Uh, it, it it really is a stunning history, and it and actually that issue really came up recently at the Supreme Court when they were talking about same sex marriage. Believe it or not, because the argument was, well, we haven't had this argument about same sex marriage. You know, for hundreds of years, like we did about other types of rights. So, you know, hold your horses here. And it was Justice Ginsburg who brought up, well, we really haven't had the concept of marriage that we have now for more than a few decades. Because not 50 years ago, when a woman got married to a a man, her entire Identity was absorbed into mm-hmm. the man. She couldn't own property. She couldn't say what would happen to the kids. Right. Uh, if he passed away, he would will the kids and everything, to, and, and, and practically her to someone else to take care of her. Uh, so you, it, this, this, these all these ideas just came up two weeks ago. Oh yeah, the, the definition of marriage has changed. I mean, right. fairly steadily since the beginning of the country. Exactly. And, and a lot of people, a lot of just regular Americans, don't realize that. Uh, there's a, a funny, uh, this is kind of off a tangent, but in the, in the uh, Herman Melville's classic uh, American novel, Moby Dick, there's a, the main character has a, a cohort that he meets at the inn. It's in the beginning of the book. He meets at the inn, and Melville writes it this way. When I first read it, I was astounded. They, they, they had to share a room, and they woke up in the same bed together, and the, 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 the main character, his, his friend, said his arm was over him, and they were, I don't know the exact words, but he said, from then on, they were together as if they were married. That's what it says in the book. And so the concept was there even in the 1840s when that book was written. Of yeah. course it was. It's been there throughout history. Uh, but excellent point, and yet another reason why we need to uh, keep our eye on the Supreme Court this term and forevermore. We Paul, do. Yeah, thank you very much for calling in. I want to get to a couple people who have been holding a really long time, but uh, Paul, really appreciate it. Uh, let's jump to Michael calling from the Bronx on line five. Michael, thanks for listening to the Leslie Marshall Show and hanging out with us today. Hey, hey, hey. It's great to talk with you folks, and the Supreme Court case, I think none of us could forget, is in 2000, Bush v. Gore, and <laughs> yeah. how I would say this Supreme Court, the 
five right-wing justices, who I call the Bush-Reagan alliance, handed the presidency to George W. Bush on a silver platter with a little help from then-Secretary of State in Florida, Catherine Harris, oh, yeah. who's also Bush's co-chairwoman, as well as uh, Big Brother or Little Brother Jeb, who ironically is running for, yeah. considering running for president, I fear a deja vu here. Look, let's not kid ourselves that it was clear that Mr. Gore would have won Florida if that Catherine Harris didn't stop the count from the Democratic districts that showed that um, Gore was gaining momentum and would have taken the lead and thus would have won Florida. She stopped the results from being produced and had the Supreme Court justice wrapped around her finger. To me, that is the utmost, the utmost crime and tyranny that I have ever witnessed yeah. in my almost 48 years of living. And Michael, you, my 48 Michael, you are absolutely correct. And, and there's it, more than that, because Catherine Harris also purged voters pre uh, election, uh, no, mostly African-American voters. That was done. And on top of it, here's another fun fact. That whole little group of people down in Florida who put this, this, this the hijacking, I'd say, of the presidency together, they were buddy buddies and, and working with a guy named Ted Cruz at the time. And Paul Weyrich, and who Paul Weyrich. <laughs> famously, infamously said that, you know, he doesn't want more people to vote, that uh, government never has been uh, – I'm, I'm running out of the quote, Shane. Help me. Never has been never will be decided by a majority of the people. Uh, uh, the, the more the voting populace goes down, the greater our, our uh, leverage goes up. Something yes, like that. But Can I these... give you guys a little insight before I go? Absolutely. Sure. First off, their idea of less government is really they want less or no accountability from the crap that they do. As far as the voter purging going on, that in a way is still going on. We mm-hmm. see all the police abuse and um, police killing of unarmed people going on. And why the hell do these Republicans favor it? Because 99% of registered Minority voters, I'm talking about blacks and Latinos, are in the Democratic Party. And thus, every single person of color that is arrested or, if you want to use the word, annihilated, and that's a registered voter, that is one less opposition vote facing these Republicans. Of course. So go figure. Yeah, and it goes right back to Ian and the Supreme Court and the talk of gerrymandering. I mean, we have to realize that uh, it wasn't, what, a year ago, two years ago, that Texas came out flat and said they're gerrymandering they're drawing district district lines to disadvantage democrats well you want to talk about disparate impact right which ian talked about the effect that these policies have on a particular minority when just as you just said michael a lot of democrats tend to be minorities so when you draw district lines to kick minorities and democrats out of uh, you know, a particular or to dilute their vote. Right. Uh, it has a disparate impact. It's how it's all related and, and you know, uh, why it is still so important that we yep. find some way to hold the Supreme Court accountable. Absolutely. And, you know, I know any right winger that's listening to me right now, they must hate my guts because I wasn't born yesterday. And I'm the type that just when they think they got the answers, 
I changed the questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, I love it, and I think you should uh, wear that hatred like a badge of honor. It was uh, FDR himself it's no who said, I welcome I their hatred. So right on, my friend. Uh, we're going to run to a, a quick break. We're going to come back with more of your calls about the Supreme Court, about Baltimore, racism, whatever you want to talk about. 888-6-LESLIE. Danielle and Shano in for Leslie Marshall. We'll be back with more. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. today. Uh, Big thanks to our special guests, Greg Grandin and Ian Milheiser. Just want to make sure I get that in because I often run into the end of the show and then I don't have enough time to thank them. Yes. And I want to get back to your calls. And also mention who's going to be here tomorrow. Oh, yes. The one and only Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com will be filling in for Leslie uh, tomorrow. If you haven't heard Nicole or you haven't heard her in a while, be sure to to, to hear her fill in because she does an amazing job and she she tells it like it is. And she's one of our mentors. Yes. We have a great deal of respect and love for her. Yes. Anybody who, who is familiar with us knows how far we go back <laughs> with Nicole. Um, let's jump to Reggie calling from Georgia on line one. Uh, Reggie, you had some thoughts on civil rights and the Supreme Court. Yes. Why can't they, you know, just, you know, let things be? The civil rights was set up for us in 1960, what, five or four? Mm-hmm. Why, are they, why are they trying to change them now? Well, well, actually, the, the Supreme Court isn't. Um, what happens is that people who conservatives specifically, and there's there's very there's a there's a few uh, small uh, boutique law firms here in D.C. that actually do these cases. Right. Uh, and if you look at the Republican, the GOP, their party planks, one of them is to overturn the Civil Rights Act, and one of them is to overturn the Voting Rights Act. Right now, I, I, parts of the Civil Rights Act. I need to be more accurate there. And one of the ways they can do that is not just by legislation; it's by suing. And so they have these small firms in 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 D.C. and they they go find a plaintiff. They actually create the case and they nurse it all the way up to the Supreme Court and argue it. So while we can say, "Hey, why is the Supreme Court doing this?" The cases come to them, and it only takes four of them to take the case. So. There's kind of a little cabal, not that they necessarily get together on the weekends, but sometimes they do, uh, of four very conservative justices and a few lawyers in D.C. who take these conservative causes on, and that's how these things type of, tend to happen. Yeah, they should leave it alone. They should have left the Voting Rights Act alone. In uh, the alternative, the Congress should do something about reinstituting parts of the Voting Rights Act. Don't hold your breath on that. Right, and I would like to talk about what happened in Garland, Texas, if you guys don't mind. Sure. I mean, sure. I mean, you know... You got people like Dana Loesch, who's, who's defending Pamela Geller, and who also conflates and confuses uh, religious freedom with discrimination. That you know, people shouldn't be offended, and the truth has to be told and must be told. That's what she always says on the radio and TV talk shows every day. You know, Dana Loesch, I mean, and Pamela Geller was on you know all the news shows this past week. You know, CNN, Fox, and all of that. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, when you talk about religion, when you talk about ethnicity, yeah. when you talk about uh, things that are so vital to who somebody is, truth can mean different things to different people. And the one point I uh, I always try and remind people, especially people like Pam, and I'm, I'm, I'm not advocating or supporting or validating what happened in that incident, right. but you, I will defend your right to speak freely. Even if I find it offensive and insulting and damaging and dangerous, you have that right. You right. do not have the right to avoid criticism for right. it. You know? Right. right. And many Muslims were offended by that Muhammad picture drawing contest for what, $10,000? Yeah. Do you know how many Muslims were offended by that? Right. Uh, of course they were. I mean, look at what just happened in France. Right. We saw what happened with Charlie Hebdo. It was an awful attack. Nobody, uh, you know, nobody condones that type of action, that type of behavior. Um, but it didn't take a rocket scientist to say that this was going to offend people. You know, there was art. Uh, I think it was back in the 70s or 80s that um, uh, uh, depicted Jesus Christ on the cross in urine. And there was a name for it that I won't repeat on the radio. But Christians all over the world found this horribly offensive, as they had the right to do. And they criticized the author, uh, the artist. They criticized uh, the the galleries and the type of uh, places that showed this art. But that artist still had a right to do it. Nazis marched through Skokie, uh, Skokie, Illinois. Right. Skokie, Illinois, the the home of many survivors of the Holocaust. The ACLU said you have a right to do that. There's also on the other side of this, though, is, you know, just because you have the right to do something, you know, have some some decency, some judgment. Right. You know, you know, and I'm not going to tell her that she can't speak. I don't think we should make a law saying she shouldn't do it. But be a human being. Come on. Right. And. Yeah. You know, while I will never condone violence of any sort, we also have to remember and we have to acknowledge, just as we have to acknowledge the the dark history of this country in slavery, we are also a country that was started, created, and developed through violence. You know, uh, this article by Tim Wise over at Alternet today really breaks down how George Washington Washington himself, that the, the fathers of our nation you know, advocated violence to overthrow the throne. And they, uh, we are here today. We are our country because people got mad and they stood up violently to that which they couldn't live with. I'm not advocating that. I'm not saying that the people in Baltimore should go riot, but to say that it's not who we are and that it's not part of our history is right. simply ignoring the facts. Right. And, how, can, how long can we go down this road before we offend somebody else and before they take matters and laws into their own, very own hands, like something like this, what happened in Garland, Texas, and what happened in Baltimore happens again? You can't say that it will never, ever happen again because then we'll be lying to ourselves and, be, uh, and we'll be also hypocritical of ourselves. Or we, will we not be? I right. Mean, uh, hey, look at the, the Tea Partiers who showed up for Clive and Bundy ready to advocate violence because of their beliefs. Right. You know, thank God that did not come to a violent end and nobody was hurt. But right. would if it had come to that, wouldn't it have been the same thing? I mean, wouldn't it have been somebody uh, using violence to stand up for what they believe in? Yes, it would have been. And you like know? I, yeah, w- yes, it would have been. I mean, how long can we endure this before we say enough is enough, you know, that people have had enough, they finally had enough, they're not going to take it anymore. They're as mad as hell, and they're not going to take it anymore, you know? That sounds like a great quote I've heard somewhere before. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent point.
Reggie. You know, you started this on civil rights. Uh, this this whole conversation is is uh, just so circular. How civil rights are vital to us as a nation and who we are. Uh, that does also have to recognize our dark and violent history and has to stand up to. Those who seek to damage it, like the Supreme Court. I know it's kind of a cliche, but if you don't know where you've come from, you don't, you can't assess where you are and where you want to go. That's right. It's 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 vital. Absolutely, well said. Uh, again, great great guests today. I want to thank uh, Ian Milheiser. His book is Injustices, and Greg Grandin, his book, The Empire of Necessity: Slavery, Freedom, and the Deception in the New World. History, vital history we all need to learn and we all need to acknowledge. Big thanks to Mark and Andrew and Leslie Marshall for sitting in with us today and helping make this possible. And thanks to you guys for listening. Uh, Nicole Sandler will be in tomorrow and Leslie will be back soon. So stick around. We've got all the news right here. I'm going to stop you right there. I see you about to settle on a day-old donut for breakfast. Well, this is a chick intervention. Because McChicken Biscuits and Chicken McGriddles are now at McDonald's. So just hit that drive through and change your life. For breakfast, you got this. Wake up breakfast. Say good morning to McChicken for breakfast. Right now at your local McDonald's, you can mix and match two Chicken McGriddles or McChicken Biscuits for just $3. Price and participation may vary at participating McDonald's for a limited time.